0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host, Howard Sides, and today we're continuing our study in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 13. We're probably a little bit over halfway. We're down to verse 14, if you want to find your spot there. <clears throat> and uh, ch- chapter 13 is quite a long uh, chapter. It, it just brings out so many points. We're trying to cover them all here. Um, so, it's taking us a little bit of time to get through it, but we will. And, uh, again, I don't like to, mit, mit, you know, jump over things. So, uh, it's it's important that we understand everything uh, that God's trying to tell us. And so, we uh, try and take our time through this study and glean every bit of uh, knowledge and teaching that the Lord has for us there. So, Uh, Revelation chapter 13, uh, by way of mention, uh, I would like to say uh, I'm recording this the week of thanksgiving. Uh, We should all have something to be thankful for. Uh, I know some more than others, but we all uh, have something to be thankful for. Um, I'm not going to take the time to get into everything I'm thankful for, uh, other than I'll say that I thank the Lord for saving me. I thank him for my family. I thank him for my wife and my kids. Uh, I thank him for my church, my church family, a really tight group of people. And uh, I ask you to pray for them uh, in this week. Uh, This coronavirus seems to have really hit our church group, our church church family uh, pretty hard this week, even my own family, uh, not my wife or kids, but my in-laws and my parents that sort of thing, so uh, I'll just ask you to uh, say a prayer for them, and I'm sure some of you are going through the same things as well, and uh, we certainly have things we can be thankful for, so certainly want to remember that, and uh, throughout the whole year. <clears throat> okay, um, getting into uh, where we're at. Uh, If you'll remember, chapter 13 is divided up into two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 10, is about the false prince. And the part we're in now, the second half, verses 11 through 18, is about the false prophet. And what we see about the false prophet is divided up into three parts. Uh, First of all, his deceiving appearance in verse 11, his dynamic appeal in verse 12, and then his deadly approach, verses uh, 13 through the end of the chapter. And we're in uh, that point, his deadly approach, uh, which is also split up into two parts. Uh, In his deadly approach, first of all, what he does is he blinds mankind, 13 through 15. Verses 13 through 15, he blinds mankind. And then verse 16 through 18, uh, we see that he binds mankind, binds mankind. So we're in that first one, the blinds mankind, right in the middle. Uh, uh, the second part of verse 14. So we'll start reading uh, verse 13 down through the end uh, to get where we're at, okay? Revelation chapter 13 and verse 13. It says, And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword, and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in the right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of the beast." or the number of his name, sorry. Uh, Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. All right, <clears throat> excuse me. So we're in the uh, middle portion of verse 14 in that phrase, in the sight of the beast, is where we're at. Uh, so it says, he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. So he was performing these miracles, uh, but it's interesting to note that he did that uh, in the sight of the beast. And and this phrase is important uh, as it tells us, it describes to us how the false prophet put his plan into action. Remember, we're talking about his deadly approach here. Um, Now, by, by, by performing these miracles where the Antichrist is present, He is associating this visual image of the Antichrist with these miracles that he's performing. And uh, if you question how important visual references are uh, to an image image association is what I'm talking about. Uh, When I did the Sunday school class, I I made a bunch of images uh, and printed them out and I held them up for everybody to look at. And to show you just how a picture uh, plays an important role in associating something to us. Uh, One of them I held up was the Golden Arches of McDonald's. Everybody knows that symbol uh, pretty much worldwide. Uh, One was the uh, Pepsi logo. Uh, One is uh, the rings of the Olympics, Uh, five colors. If you didn't know this, The Olympic rings, the five colors are blue, yellow, green, red, and black. And the reason for them five rings of that specific color is that it represents at least one color in every flag of all the nations of the world. I don't know if that's still true today because, you know, I know some countries change things around, but uh, that was the intent and purpose of why they did those. Um, I also did the Batman logo. I did the Superman logo. Uh, I did an image of the Eiffel Tower. I did one of the United States. I also did one of George Washington, one of Lincoln. I also did one of some Easter eggs. I did one of uh, a Christmas tree. And all these are images that that strike up an association of some form or manner uh, with things that we know, things that we easily recognize and, and strike up memories uh from some of the pictures that and that that's why it is and and on that point uh of course i did this lesson in 2014 uh so these stats that i have are based on 2014 but in in 2014 uh the top 200 advertisers in the united states spent 137.8 billion dollars on advertising that that's a ton of money on advertising now, in that, the U.S. population in 2014 was 318.6 million people. Now, that means when you divide it out, that only the top 200 advertisers, just the top 200, there's many more than that, but only the top 200 advertisers, spent an average of $432.52 per person in the U.S. on advertising. That, that, You could round that up and just say that they spent $450 for each individual in the United States just on advertising. And if you ever listen to some of the radio stations or if you watch TV, you'll know, yeah, okay, that, yeah, certainly fits. Because, I mean, it's like commercial after commercial after commercial after commercial after commercial. Uh, But you ask, well, you know, why do they do that? Because that same year, the average consumer, again, this is an average number, uh, spent $53,495 for the year. That's how much money, on average, the individual U.S. citizen spent for the year. 53000 almost $54,000. Now, I'm sure that a lot of that was major expenses, which kind of boosted the average. Some people were buying houses, some people were buying cars, uh, that sort of thing. But, but you still have to factor in the Christmas shopping and uh, seasonal shopping and other times, I, you know, <laughs> that adds up. You ever go to Lowe's and, and buy it like, uh, you know, in the springtime and you buy those flowers or the grass seed or th- that, man, that stuff gets real expensive very fast. So you can see how that's not such an unimaginable uh, amount there. All right. Uh, the next phrase, Uh, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now, if you remember when we first started the chapter and uh, in verse three over there, it said, and I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. It doesn't say how it was wounded there, but it waited till later in the chapter to give us a hint uh, to how it was wounded. And and this phrase here, uh, which had the wound by a sword. Now there's, I know there's many ways this could have happened, but it it tends to assume assume to uh, you know it tends to insinuate that's the word I'm looking for. It tends to insinuate that there was some kind of fight, there was some kind of resistance uh, where a sword was used that that hit him in the head, uh, and they thought he was going to die. But miraculously, he he got better. Now, the key to that, as I mentioned in verse 3, is that this false prophet does not have the power to raise people from the dead. So the Antichrist could not die, and then the false prophet raise him from the dead. He does not have that power. But what he can do, as it says right there in the very first part of the verse we're in, and deceiveth them. he made He made it look like he raised this antichrist from the dead uh and so by seeing him and and how he's okay and all of it uh the people would and you think well well you know that's a lot of deception it's not that much deception when you look at what people are uh falling for in today's world I, i mean the news uh reports such things as a fact and People readily eat it up with with no fact-checking whatsoever. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to go into that. You can see it. You see it for yourself. Um, So here in this phrase, there's this word image here. And this word image in the Greek is the word icon. E-I-K-O-N. E-I-K-O-N. Yeah, icon. It means a likeness, a statue, a profile, a representation, or a resemblance. And we use the word icon all the time. Oh, he's an icon. You know, He's a symbol. He's an image very close to that. Now, the word image in the Old Testament, uh, if you go back to the very first time it's used, it's all the way in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, 27, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. All right, now there's some points I want to bring out in this phrase. Now this is the very first chapter. Obviously, this was written after God created the male and the female, who would have been there to write it if he hadn't. Of course, we know Moses wrote this. All right, but the phrasing of these two verses, first of all, in 27, it says, in the image of God created he him, male and female. Okay, we know that, Adam and Eve, we know he created that. But I want to draw your attention there in verse 26, two things. And God said, let us make man in our image, us and our this shows that God is speaking to the Trinity. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost together. Uh, that That's a plural form, us. It didn't say, and God said, let me make man in my image. He said, let us make man in our image. They were all involved in it. They all had a role in it. I know it. it's hard to break it up and explain what it is, but uh, they are the three in one, but they each have a distinct uh, characteristic, a different role uh if you will but the phrase there uh the next phrase i want to point out says and let them have dominion let us make man that's singular and let them that's plural again even in the very beginning god knew uh that he was going to have to make a woman god knew he would make a man and god knew he'd make a woman and that's where that them comes in let them have dominion uh, so I thought that was a pretty interesting point to bring out there. Now, image here in, in these verses in the Hebrew is the word uh, to uh, teselem. To it's hard to pronounce. To selam. It's T-S-E-L-E-M in the Hebrew. It means to shade, a phantom or an illusion, a resemblance. So technically, man could have been a, a paler version of God like the phantom part of it, or maybe even a shade or a shadow of God. But when man fell in the garden, we lost something that made us like God. Uh, We no longer were sinless. We we let sin enter into our hearts. So God would would have to send uh, his son to bring us back to him through salvation. Now, it was God's goal for us to grow in likeness to his son, by changing into his son's image. Now what image is that? Of course Christ was the image of God. We were created to be an image of God. And God wants us to return to that state through Christ. Not to be God or to be as gods. So you remember Satan used that phrase on Eve. Uh, but like-minded and like-spirited as God. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 4 goes on. Uh, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now God specifically tells his people not to have any gods before him nor to make any graven images or likenesses of anything to worship. God wanted to be first in their hearts, their minds, and the affections of his people. Uh, other references to the word image in, in the uh, Old Testament, Leviticus 26 1 says, "Ye shall make no idols nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall ye set up an image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord your God. Uh, the phrase here, graven image, is the Hebrew word uh, pesel, P E S E L, pesel. It means a carved image or something that's graven. Uh, the next phrase, standing image, uh, is the Hebrew word matsebal. Matsebao. It's M-A-T-S-T-S-E-B-A-H. Matsebao. <laughs> Some of these words are hard to pronounce, so that's why I'm spelling them out for you, so you can look them up. Uh, it may, A standing image means something stationed, such as a column or a memorial stone. And of course, what am I thinking of? I'm thinking of a totem pole. Here in America, we know uh, some of the native history. Uh, that's a totem pole. Uh, and of course, there's other examples of that. That's just the one that sticks out in my head. I'm not calling them out for that. Uh, and then it goes on and it says any image. So you've got graven, graven image, standing image, and any image. Now, the, the, the word for any image is maskith maskith. That's M-A-S-K-I-Y-T-H. maskith. It means a figure carved on stone... Or a wall, a figure made from imagination. Now this word comes from the root word Seku, S-E-K-U, which means a surmount, a watchtower or observatory. Uh, Seku was a place in Palestine. So we have three definitions for different kinds of images there. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 12, And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quick from hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves, They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten image. And, of course, this is the story about the golden calf that they made. This molten image uh, is the Hebrew word uh, uh, maseka. uh, Yeah, maseka. Yeah, m-a-s-s-e-k-a-h. Very close to standing image, but it is a little bit different there. Uh, masaka. It means a pouring over, fusion of metal, a cast image, and this comes from the root word nasak, N-A-S-A-K, which means to pour out as in an anointing, to cast, to melt, uh, to offer a sacrifice, to set, or to install. So it has to do with uh, uh, melting down metal and pouring it into a frame uh, that produces an image. job chapter 4 verses 12 through 17 now a thing was secretly brought to me and mine ear received a little thereof in thoughts from the visions of the night when deep sleep falleth on men fear came upon me and trembling uh, which made all my bones to shake then a spirit passed before my face the hair of my flesh stood up it stood still but i could not discern the form thereof an image was before mine eyes there was silence And I heard a voice saying, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? So the word here uh, for image is the Hebrew word temunah. Temunah, T-E-M-U-N-A-H. And it means something fashioned out of, uh, a shape of, or an embodiment, a manifestation, an image or a likeness. Um, So, uh, that's another definition for image. Now, the word image in the New Testament, uh, and there's only two times that it's used there. Uh, Romans chapter one, verse 23, and change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Uh, this is that word uh, icon, Icon, E-I-K-O-N, which means a likeness, a statue or resemblance. Something that is like the original, but is merely a copy of it. Uh, then in Hebrews 1 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is talking about Christ being an image of God. And this is the word uh, character, C H A R A K T E R. And, of course, we use the word character uh, many times in our English language today. Uh, The word character means an engraver, uh, the tool or the person, an engraving, a stamped figure. Uh, This represents an exact copy or representation. So, basically, what this verse is saying is that God's character was stamped on Christ like a mark. God, the engraver, pressed the metal into the die, or God, the stamp pressed into the wax. Uh, This is the one and only reference to character in the entire Bible. So you see that form of image is only used one time in the Bible and that is referencing Christ and God. No other time is it used. So uh, where the Old Testament speaks of the image of God or the image of idols, it's interesting to note that half the references of the word icon or image in the New Testament deal with Christ, the image of God as well as the reference to character, but the other half deal with the image of the beast in Revelation, the true image versus the false uh, image. Uh, now, I'm a, I, say, I say I use that phrase, half the references of the word icon. Well, there's only one, so <laughs> I have to revise my notes there. There's only one. Uh, now, James Knox says on this, and I quote, Idolatry is the deliberate, determined attempt on the part of man to put away from his thoughts the concept Of a holy God. He places a visual object of worship before his eyes to serve as his God that he might silence his conscience and indulge his lusts. Um, Idolatry was unknown in the world before the great flood of Noah's day. The first biblical record of idolatry is recorded in the book of Joshua, chapter 24. Uh, in verse 2, and then again in verse 14, Joshua 24, verse 2, and in verse 14, and it says there, and Joshua said unto all the people, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Now, it it would be common to hear that phrase, other side of the flood, and automatically think it's talking about the great flood, Noah's flood. But that's not true, and we know that in this verse because he goes on to say, uh, uh, Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor they served other gods. And then it said that the, the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood in, in Egypt. Uh, so what this phrase is referring to, the other side of the flood, it's referring to the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates yearly, uh, during the wet season, or what we know as the rainy season, would overflood its banks. And it was called the, the flood. And so that's what he's referring to, is on the other side of the Euphrates, And why would he say it that? It was because after they crossed over into uh, the promised land, uh, all of that stuff basically was behind them. Uh, And and so he's referring to it on the other side of the flood there. Now, the end of verse 14 tells us that Israel was introduced to idolatry in Babylon and in Egypt. Idolatry uh, began in ancient Babylon, known then as Babel, uh, where the Tower of Babel was built. Now, Genesis 11 tells us an overview of the story by introducing us to a man named Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter, who was the great-grandson of Noah and the son of Cush. Now, we know through historic accounts that he had a wife named Semiramus. yeah, S-E-M-I-R-A-M-U-S, Semiramus, who was one of the most wicked women ever known. Now, we don't know a lot about her, but that doesn't mean that we know about her character. It's these historic records uh, and what came out of that that tell us uh, about her character uh, as it was written uh, down through time. Excuse me. Now, as open apostasy was illegal in that day, uh, Nimrod was eventually put to death for trying to push that. Uh, Parts of his body... uh, his body. Once he was put to death, his body was cut up into pieces, and his pieces of his body were sent to all different cities as a warning to the people. Uh, Samiram, Samiramis's wife, fled, of course, but spread the rumor that Nimrod had ascended into heaven. Now, later, with the birth of her son, she claimed that this was the reincarnation of Nimrod. And upon her death, she was deified. And named the Queen of Heaven. Now the Queen of Heaven is a term that's even used to this very day by the Roman Catholic Church uh, as a title for Mary. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that Mary is deified nor is she ever put on a position of equal uh, deity with God. Nowhere. Yes, she was chosen to be the mother of Christ but that's it. That's it. Uh, she was not deified for that, although they try to push that. Now, uh, back to our story. Now, when Nimrod died, a secret society was established in Babylon whose main focus was to confuse and destroy the knowledge of Jehovah. Now, destroying it's one thing, but to confuse it, that's another matter. Uh, the confusion part is, is a lot easier. It's not easy to to begin with, but it is easier for um, Satan to use that method as he is the master deceiver. The Bible calls him that. Uh, So the confusion there part is is a lot easier. Now, uh, about the secret society, they had no known name, but were known to practice mysteries or what was called dark magic. Now, this apostasy was based on the deification of Nimrod, Samiramis and their child, which became the point of worship in place of Nimrod, becoming mother, son, worship. Now, again, an example of that is what we have today in the Roman Catholic Church, where they worship Mary as the holy mother, and then the son, uh, Jesus Christ. They're copying that when they say ma- mother, son, worship. That's nowhere in the Bible. Um, clearly, in the Ten Commandments, God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. All right, next point. Uh, Mother and child worship was the basis of all the ancient religions. In the various religions of the world, the same system of worship was perpetuated under different names. In Egypt, the mother and child were worshipped as Isis and Osiris or Horus. In India, as Isi and Iswara. In China and Japan, as the mother goddess Xing Mu with child. In Greece, as Ceres or Irene and Plutus. In Rome, as Fortuna and Jupiter uh, Jupiter Pure <laughs> or Venus and Adurnus. In Scandinavia, it was Frigga and Balder. Uh, the mother and child were worshipped in Babylon as Ishtar and Tammuz. And in Phoenicia as Ashtoreth and Baal. Moreover, the child was worshipped as both husband and son of the mother goddess. So, therefore, you're incorporating uh, incest into that as well. Now, the male component is a counterfeit of Jesus Christ. You see that. The biblical names used for Jesus were also used for the child in ancient religions. Zoroaster was referred to as the seed seed. Mithra, the Persian sun god, was referred to as the savior. Dionysus as the sin bearer. Bacchus as the branch. Vishnu as the victim man. And Osiris as the king of kings. So you see how they're incorporating phrases out of the Bible with the gods they had set up. So here's the confusion taking place and insinuating... uh a level of importance with them and tying it in with association and a visual reference so uh, the people would forget God. So you see how that phrase uh, James Knox had about them using the phrases to put the, Im- uh, the, the the thought of God out of their hearts with the vision, so visual reference. Uh, okay, at the Tower of Babel, God separated mankind into various tribes and languages to spread them across the globe. Now, what is interesting to note Is that all the tribal groups in the world have a record of creation, of the flood, and the scattering at Babel, which all match the biblical record? But from this point forward, all the groups turn to mythologies, deities, spiritism, demonism, and different forms of idolatry. All right, Uh, our next point, verses uh, 15. Uh, The phrase there, it says, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Now, here the false prophet performs the second of his most notorious miracles. Now, of course, the first was mentioned back in verse 13 where it says uh, that he had the power to call fire down from heaven. Now, here he gives life to an image or an idol. And you've got to admit... Uh, seeing something like that, visual reference, it uh, be hard to deny it if you don't ever find out the source. Uh, the word life here is the Greek word pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma, and it comes from the verb uh, nuo P-N-E-O, which means to breathe, to breathe. Now, pneuma here refers to the breath of life imparted by God to those who are both dead and inanimate. Now, I personally believe this does not indicate that the false prophet literally gave life to this idol. As I've just mentioned before, he does not have that power. But what it's talking about here is it was merely the perception of life. It was a deception through the use of perception. Visual reference. Um, so uh, he, mer- he merely had the this thing, had merely the perception line, such as the word performed in verse 3, uh, as it were. Uh, the word pneuma focuses more on the breath than on the word life. Now, remember, uh, I mentioned it before, I'll mention it again, but in the temple of Diana, there was the statue there. Uh, and when they built this thing, they had a method of using steam. Uh, and, and the statue was behind these massive closed doors built out of uh, stone, from from what I can recall from uh, reading. Uh, and this steam, of course, would build up pressure, build up pressure, build up pressure. And as these people were coming in and praying, uh, and then they'd get through and they'd leave, and then, you know, the next person would come in and they'd pray. Well, eventually, at some point, one person or a group of people would be in there, and the steam pressure would build up to the point that there was enough pressure to push these doors open. Now, you can imagine... Being in that day and time, uh, with, with the level of intellect that they had, with these visual references they had, they're here praying to this God, and these doors open up and reveal this God to this person praying or a group of people praying. What would you do? <laughs> I, I mean, really, if, if, and, and the sad part of it is, unless God gives us the perception, the the, the knowledge, to know truth, uh, we would all fall for this. And, and I mean, you look around the world today, and it may not be stone doors being opened with steam, uh, but there is a massive case of deception going on, right here in our own very own government. I mean, it's 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 happening everywhere. Um, I wasn't going to mention this, but but I will. Uh, what's the case of this? Uh, uh, This young guy, um, and and listen, this this shouldn't have even made national news. Yes, it's important, okay? Uh, But uh, this young fellow who um, used a weapon and killed three people. Now, he claimed self-defense. The other side uh, claimed that it was murder. But whatever happened, the jury found uh, this individual innocent and and listen the, the troubling part of this is right after that and, and I'm gonna say it uh the president got on uh well, I don't know if he actually got on t v or if he made the statement or I read it and said he was saddened and angry, like the other people uh of the outcome of that jury, and then he admitted he'd never even seen the trial that tells you right there that this was all an attack on weapons only they could care less about this guy, they could care less about the events that led up to this. Uh, Whatever really actually happened, uh, from what I've read, I personally believe it was a case of uh, self-defense, maybe not a very strong case of self-defense, but by the letter of the law, it was self-defense. But he's saying that he's angry at the outcome of the jury, and he hadn't even seen the trial. So, I mean, that, that gave a little more clue as to what they're after right there versus the truth. They don't care about the truth it's just saying that's what it is. All right, so, um, life. We're talking about the word life here. Life in the New Testament has 12 different meanings. Uh, but specifically in this case, uh, there's three that we're going to bring out. Uh, the word psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E, Greek word psyche. It's the animating principle or the breath of life that God gives to both humans and animals. Then there's the word zoe. Yeah, there's some, uh, that's that's a name used for female. It's Z-O-E, Zoe. This is life of the highest quality, having reached the fullest potential of God through the redemptive work of Christ. For example, eternal life is the word Zoe. Uh, And then there's the word Z-A-O, Z-A-O, Z-A-O. Now, this is the verb from which Zoe comes from living a life that fulfills the potential God has intended for those who live for him, both here on earth and for eternity. Uh, So, Zoe is the act of achieving that level of highest quality. Zao is not just the mere achievement, but the actual use of it, continually living that way. So, by specific definition, the false prophet is able to give this idol breath, which is a sign of life. But he's unable to give this idol literal life, as God only can do this. But when people see this idol breathe, they can only deduce that this idol is alive. So once again, we see the false prophet mimicking only what God can virtually do. He displays himself breathing the breath of life into an idol. Okay, the next phrase, uh, that the image of the beast should both speak. Now, <laughs> uh, this is a whole nother, another level here, uh, to a point. Now, this is a very significant statement here. And I refer back to the Old Testament, Psalms chapter 135, verses 15 through 16. It says, The idols of the heaven are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. Then again in Isaiah 46, verses 6 through 7 they lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith and he maketh it a god they fall down yea they worship they bear him upon the shoulder they carry him and set him in his place and he standeth from his place shall he not remove yea one shall cry unto him yet can he not answer nor save him out of his trouble these are two references in the old testament that these people can make the gods no matter how they will and they may even have a mouth but they cannot speak for themselves So here in this phrase, can't you see for yourself, if you're there in that day, how the false prophet is going to quote this scripture and use it as the convincing power uh, or the convincing method uh, to deceive the people of the world that since this idol is actually breathing and speaking, that he, the false prophet, must be the prophet Elijah. And he's got the power to do this stuff. Now, we can only speculate as to what this idol says, but based on the fact that the false prophet's goal here is to have the world worship this idol, uh, he must speak the words of the first beast, the Antichrist, so the people will think of him as they look upon this copy of him. He's going to use some of the same phrases, some of the same uh, terms and things of that to associate himself with uh, the Antichrist. Uh, the next phrase, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Okay, so now we're reaching a point where it's not just this deception matter. uh, There's some action taken against those uh, who still hold out and say that it's not true. Okay, sorry about the beep beep. That's my phone there. (laughs) If you heard that, I'm sure you did. Uh, All right, back to here. So... Uh, and calls that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. All right, now the deceit of the false prophet here is is further described in that he not only gave this idol life, and that he then made it seem as though it was able to speak, but it also had power or the authority uh, to kill anyone who would not worship this idol. Uh, In the pulpit commentary, which which is a set of commentaries of, of different writers, uh, it makes this uh, this quote, and, and I thought it was pretty good. That's uh, why I put it here. Uh, so, And I quote, This is the dangerous power of self-deceit. If men would face the naked truth, stripped of plausible arguments, and specious, or convincing, resemblances, they would see that there was no reality in the idea which they placed before their minds, and their worship of which is promoted by love of the world and the denial of God's power. Together with the attempt to deceive men into worshiping the image is offered the alternative of death, or should we not say apparent death? It is only self-deceit which makes men imagine that the alternative to an acceptance of the sovereignty of Satan and the world is death. No doubt many Christians in St. John's time were thus beguiled, they deceived themselves by imagining that they must either conform to the heathen practices required of them or suffer death. Those with clearer mental vision saw that the threatened death was in reality life. End quote. So, uh, of course, here is the threat of life. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The, the threat is death. And even, even today, um, it may not may not be used as much in the world as it will be in this day, uh, but they're getting men's minds on the death side of it. And to refuse this would, you know, if they're a believer, if they refuse this, th- then to the kill them is not death, it's actually life. Excuse me. Uh, now, notice the phrase apparent death. Now, the phrase in the verse, if you see it, is should be killed should be killed, not were killed. Now, the phrase should be is the Greek word hina, H-I-N-A, which means the demonstrative idea or action that brings about a purpose or result. Uh, Okay, in other words, should be is suggesting that the mere threat of being put to death is convincing enough to the people of the world that they should bow. Now, remember that the word image icon is referred to seven times in revelation chapter 13 verse 15 chapter 14 verse 9 and 11 chapter 15 verse 2 chapter 16 and verse 2 chapter 19 and verse 20 and then chapter 20 and verse 4 now to worship this image will be seen by god as the crowning and complete act of blasphemy for mankind and you think, well, yes, breaking the Ten Commandments. It's not merely that. Uh, listen, if, if we're honest, every day we break the Ten Commandments. I try and live right, and every day I break one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it, it's our flesh. If we don't have the control of it that we should have, then we're going to fail. And when we fail, it falls at least in one of the categories of those Ten Commandments. And if you're not convinced by that, then read the book of Leviticus at all the laws. Uh, you're you're going to be guilty of something. So, uh, it's this threat. And once they bow to this image, um, it's going to be like the final straw for God. Now, this sets forth for us two examples in in our natural history uh, that we know of. I'll I'll give one out of our history, and I'll give one out of the Bible. Uh, The one in our history, how about the Great Holocaust? Now, while Hitler was responsible for killing over six million Jews, He could not possibly kill all six million at the point of arrest. They had to be processed and sent to places where they were eventually killed. Now, to the biblical point, uh, the three Hebrew boys, Daniel chapter 3 and verse 6 says, And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now, what's going on here is uh, Babylon has gone in and captured Israel. what Babylon did was they took some of the choice young men uh, some of the young princes and and some of those that were uh, leaders uh, smart kids and brought them back to Babylon and were infusing them in their culture All right, so while they're here uh, Nebuchadnezzar raises up this huge uh, golden statue of himself and tells them hey you're going to bow down and worship this statue uh, or it means certain death and <clears throat> listen to uh, uh, as it goes on. Now, again, while Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow and were thrown into the fire, they did not die. In fact, you could say the threat of death resulted in new life. Now, the, I'm not saying here that every time we refuse to do something with the threat of death, we're not going to die. This is Old Testament times. God used signs and symbols to speak to his people they he does not use that in the New Testament time uh, d- d- look at the book uh, the fox uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs uh many more times people died than they were uh, uh, saved and lived uh, but yet we're we're not just talking about physical life here that this is in the end result it's about your spirituality and and while they're attacking, the physical body and saying that death is the end, uh, and these people are deceived into thinking that. You have to think spiritually. To be put to death is the beginning of the spiritual life. So, uh, this is by no means the end. If you're saved, uh, and and you, well, even if you're not saved, you're going to live forever. Okay, your soul's going to live forever. just determines where you go. So, I guess I need to clear that point up. But hey, but this goes on in James chapter three. Later on, verses 28 through 30, it says Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Even Paul reminds us in Philippians 1.21 that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For us to die is not the end. It's, it's the beginning. It's life with Christ. It's life with God. Uh, it's heaven is is the ultimate goal that we're after here and and so death would bring it about quicker okay uh that's about forty eight minutes so i 'm going to stop there um pretty much need to recharge my phone it looks like um and then we 'll pick up uh in verse sixteen uh with this second point under uh his deadly approach it binds mankind uh verses sixteen through eighteen okay all right so uh i'll take a few minutes to uh, get my notes together and then we'll be right back if you want to join us. And uh, let me say once again, thank you for listening. Uh, Continue to pray for me, pray for our church family, uh, pray for your family and friends. And uh, remember this week, Thanksgiving week, um, be thankful, be thankful. We should always be thankful, uh, but sometimes we do have to be reminded. And so this is my point reminding you that, uh, we should be thankful. If, if nothing else, uh, be thankful that there not only is a God, but that he loves you. He does love you. Even when we fail, despite how many times we fail, he still loves us. And that that's great. a great point right there alone. All right, so thank you for joining me, and uh, hopefully you'll join me on the next podcast. Have a great day, and God bless.